Now the word of God. All right. That was some good singing. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord together. Um, I'm so thankful to be here with all of you. This Advent season's been very special already and looking forward to uh, the coming weekend as well. And before I begin preaching, I just want to mention that. I know I said it a couple weeks ago, and I want to reiterate. I was actually unpleasantly surprised to find that many churches, because Christmas Day is falling on a Sunday, are not having Christmas Day services. Um, and I, it doesn't make sense to me, but I guess that's what some churches are doing. But I do encourage you to make Christ the centerpiece of the holiday. It is, after all, a religious holiday. Um, I saw uh, someone I follow on Twitter last week said, uh, you know, Christmas is not really about family anyway. It's about Jesus, and the family gets to celebrate that together. In fact, uh, as I was reading, uh, as I typically do every year, I read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It's one of my favorites. Um, so I read it each season, and I was reminded that after Scrooge comes out of his whole thing, and he's reformed and we might say regenerated in, in a sense. The very first thing he does after sending the turkey to the Cratchit family is he goes to church. And so it reminded me that that used to be the tradition is to actually have a church service on Christmas Day, even when it wasn't on Sunday. And I'm not sure that's not some tradition we ought to bring back. And I know I have at least one supporter of that idea, right, Judith? So anyway... Um, just saying, I'd like to see you all here, not because it's for me, but because I think it's important to make Christ the centerpiece of the holiday that's named for him. Do you think so? All right, let's look at our message this morning, which is titled, Dignity or Disgrace. We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And to start out, I'll give a couple dictionary definitions of the title there. Um, dignity is the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. And disgrace is lo means loss of reputation or respect as a result of dishonorable action. Um, and so the question sometimes becomes like, was there any dignity in Christ's birth, or is it all a disgrace? And we're going to look at the situations in which he found himself as a newborn baby in a difficult situation. Uh, so we're going to get into that as we go through the scriptures together this morning. Um, and I was putting the slides together this morning for the sermon, and I thought, oh, oh, I think I used too much scripture in the sermon this morning. No, kidding impossible, right? Okay, so let's start out looking at a few scriptures about Jesus and about his birth. The first is from Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Luke 2, which we're going to read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 20 for the full context, and then we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 7 as our study this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this account we have to look at each year, hopefully during the year as well, as a reminder of the birth of Christ. Lord, as we take a look this morning at the situation he arrived in, may we be ever mindful and may we marvel at this concept of Emmanuel, God with us, the mighty king, the mighty God, the creator of all the universe who humbled himself to this point. Help us to understand it better through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to go back to verse 1 and we're going to go through to look at this together. The first verse here talks about the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So a little bit about Caesar Augustus. So he was a very, uh, there were a lot of Caesars or emperors of Rome, but he was a very significant one. Um, Some say he said it, some say others said it about him, but he was the one that received Rome as a city of mud and brick and turned it into a marble city. Uh, It was uh, a huge amount of the construction of Rome went on under his leadership. Um, and according to uh, Kent Hughes, he said he was the first Caesar to be called Augustus when the Roman Senate voted to give him that title. Now, Augustus means holy or revered. And up to that time, the title was reserved exclusively for the gods. It was under Augustus' rule that decisive strides were taken toward making the Caesars gods. In fact, at about the same time Luke was writing these words, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year, 
hailing him as Savior. An inscription uh, even called him Savior of the whole world. Historian John Buchan records that when Caesar Augustus died, men actually comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a god and that gods do not die. So the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior. Luke, the historian and theologian, wants us to see this as the tableau for understanding the coming of the real Savior. The contrast could not be greater. Another thing that Augustus is celebrated for is something called the Pax Romana. Does anyone remember that from your high school history classes? So that was the Peace of Rome, right? Celebrated these, there was a quite a long period of time where there was no real war in the world and there was relative peace. But what is uh, sometimes missed in the Pax Romana is that that peace came at the cost of total control and elimination of all opponents. This peace came only after many years of brutal war. So that's kind of the context of verse 1. That's who Augustus was. And then it says, this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this is a fact that has helped uh, historians to narrow down the time of Jesus' birth. Moving on to verses 3. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. If you've been around a church around Christmas time, you've probably heard that this was about an 80-mile journey. So... You think of wherever you would go from here, that's 80 miles away, uh, and then try to walk it and see if you like that. Um, But they had to go register each in their own town. Uh, Joseph was from the lineage of David. Bethlehem is the city of David. It's also been called the city of bread, which is a connection people make, the fact that the bread of life was born there. Um, But Jerusalem also sometimes is called the city of David. So what's the difference here? Um, Bethlehem is the, the, the place where David was born and raised, and then Jerusalem became the city of David. Um, and so that might help you understand it a little bit better. You can read about that in 1 Samuel if you like. Okay, so it was about an 80-mile journey for this couple And verses 6 and 7 says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So, I might be bursting some bubbles here, and I apologize. I'm not trying to do that. But we have lots of um, things around Christmas that have become traditions that are not necessarily right. You may be aware of that. For example... You may look down here and see that there's some wise men right there, um, but they wouldn't have been there right the night he was born. Uh, They came later. But uh, the other one that we often hear, and sometimes you see it in a kid's uh, Christmas pageant or something, uh, was there a rude and gruff innkeeper, as so many uh, people have thought? um, Was there this guy who was so mean he wouldn't possibly let this couple into his inn? 
Um, the other one is, was he born in a cave? Some people have said, well, he was probably born in a cave. And other people have said, well, he might have been born in the open air because sometimes the animals were uh, kind of in a, in a stable that really didn't have a roof on it, more like a little fenced-in area or something. Well, I want to read this from the World Biblical Commentary, and I believe we might have a slide for this too. Uh, the explanation given for this unusual resting place, that is the manger, is cryptic and carries no great weight in the story. Uh, the Greek word is a flexible word and can denote any kind of place where one might stay, from a primitive inn to a guest room of a house to a totally unspecified place where one might stay. So in other words, the word that we're translating to inn could have meant a lot of different things. If we are to understand that Mary and Joseph were excluded from the inn, then the definite article favors reference to the public inn at Bethlehem, uh, though the guest room of a family home remains possible. And I think I have a slide here, and I don't think it's going to show a little pixelated probably because it's blown up. Um, but actually, this is a common uh, type of dwelling that would have been in uh, Palestine at the time. Uh, and they would either be one story or two. If they were one story, the family living quarters was often separated from the animals only by a, like a little bit of a riser, something like this platform here. And the animals would be right next to you as you go to bed, and you know, you'd hope that you did a good job keeping them clean. And you thought the litter box was bad, girls. Um, but anyway, uh, the other situation is like the one pictured there. They might have two stories where the animals are down below and uh, the family is upstairs with their living quarters at night. Um, and so it's very possible that they were just visiting with relatives. There just wasn't room uh, for them uh, to lay down. And as we do whenever we're in a situation where we need to make something happen, they needed a place to, to lay the baby down, and what do you do? All the beds are being used. Every, you, know, you don't lay a baby on the bed anyway, but there's, uh, okay, there's a manger. Let's put some uh, straw and some um, blankets in there and lay the baby there. And so uh, there's lots of theories on this. None of it's definitive. But the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, was the coming of Christ a loss of dignity? Was God disgraced by it? Um, now, Christians, we believe that all human life has dignity. And we believe that because we believe the Bible. And the Bible says that all humans bear the image of God. And so, therefore, we all have some dignity. Even the worst of us have dignity. Um, so there is dignity in every human anyway, but Jesus did willingly endure shame. Now, shame is not necessarily the same as guilt. Someone could feel ashamed of something they weren't guilty of. There was no crime or broken rule, but they just feel ashamed of something. Sometimes people feel ashamed at some physical feature that they had nothing to do with and they can't help, Right. Um, but Jesus felt the shame of being condemned by people, yet he never suffered shame before the Father God, but rather God esteemed Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah has, had foreseen the shame that Jesus would suffer. Now, we just were talking about Isaiah this morning in, um, in our D6 classes, 
Um, and that was in, we were in Isaiah chapter 49, which was one of the servant songs. But now we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 52, the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And some of this will be familiar to you, but often at Christmas time, there's parts of it kind of uh, pulled out to put on uh, signs or put on uh, decorations and that kind of thing. But we want to see the whole thing in context, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay, so just as a reminder, when did Isaiah prophesy this about Jesus? Was it the day before he was born? The week before? Oh, about 700 years before, right? Um, about, about 700 years before Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah foretold of the shame and disrespect that Jesus would suffer at the hands of people. So let's read together from Isaiah 52. We're starting at verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Remember from D6, those of you that were there? This is why they call it a servant song. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a, slant, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave among, with the wicked and with a jet, rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soil to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's good news to every believer. Jesus never lost his dignity before God. Yet, in the sight of people, he was disgraced. 
His life appeared to begin and end with disgrace, yet he was eternally dignified. But the way he was born was certainly very humble. The middle schoolers learned this last quarter in D6. Well, more than what I'm going to read, but from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus showed us by example what true humility is. He was in the form of God, and yet he humbled himself to be born in what we would probably consider scandalous circumstances if it were any child of a king or a dignitary today. Even if it weren't a king or dignitary, if we were to learn of someone uh, that would, even here in Palm Beach County, if it was in the news this week, someone had to give birth outside or next to a dumpster, we would all shake our heads and say, it's terrible. We've been so convinced that the baby is in great danger if it's not born in a perfectly sterile room, right? And yet, Jesus was born in this way. I want you to listen as I read something here from Kent Hughes. It's a long quotation, but it was said so much better than I could put on my own, I couldn't help it. So all credit to Mr. Hughes for the next few minutes here, who God gifted to put it uh, into words. Here's what he said. Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did. Seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail, all that would make a man either curse or cry. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenters' hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. His mother groaned. His father wept. Into the dangerous world he leapt. It was clearly a leap down, as if the Son of God rose from his splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, irradiating light, and dove headlong, speeding through the stars over the Milky Way to Earth's galaxy, finally past Arcturus, where he plunged into a huddle of animals. Nothing could be lower. Luke finishes the picture in verse 7. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Mary counted his fingers, and the couple wiped him clean as best they could by firelight. Mary wrapped each of his little arms and legs with strips of cloth, mummy-like. No one helped her. She laid him in a feeding trough. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince but as a pauper. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself setting the example comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. The incarnation provides a marvelous paradigm for Christ's work in our lives. Every Advent season, and hopefully at other times as well, we are brought again to the wonder of the incarnation. See the swaddled Jesus lying in the feeding trough in the stable, the birthplace of common livestock. Look long and hard with all your mind and all your heart. From early times, the paradox of the Incarnation has given birth to mind-boggling expressions. St. Augustine said of the infant Jesus, Unspeakably wise, he is wisely speechless. Lancelot Andrews, who crafted much of the beautiful English of the Old Testament in the, New King or in the King James Version, preached before King James on Christmas Day, 1608, picked up on Augustine's idea and described Christ in the manger as the word without a word. He is in his person, the word of God. Lucy Shaw in her beautiful poem, Mary's Song, says, Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. The one who asked Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, now himself laid wrapped in swaddling cloths. The wonder of the incarnation, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God became a baby. Jesus suffered from apparent indignity throughout his life and ministry. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So when you pray to him, when you feel rejected, when you feel despised, when you are grieving, know that Jesus the Savior has experienced these emotions as well. And he knows what pain is both emotional and physical pain. And he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Do you see, my friends, this is the sum of all the gospel, and it was told by Isaiah 700 years before it happened. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This verse speaks of transgressions and iniquities. Transgression means crime. Violating God's law is a crime. As R.C. Sproul often said, cosmic treason. The word could also be translated evil doing. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That word means sin. So for our crimes, our sins, our evil doing, 
Jesus was crushed, was pierced. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement means discipline. The heavy discipline we deserve for our sins against God was received by Jesus for those who put faith in him. And with his wounds we are healed. Now, many have ripped this phrase out all by itself and said, oh, he's talking about physical healing from the sick. And we are taught to pray for the sick with faith in Jesus' name. But how could we possibly conclude that this is simply about healing from sickness? Because in this verse we see the suffering servant pierced for transgressions or iniquities. In other words, our crimes against God, our evil doing, our sins. So our main problem is not physical sickness. Although Christ cares about this as well. But our main problem is the sin that separates us from God and causes us to be under his wrath. And that is why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Not because the gospel was all about physical healing, but because it was effective to those listeners who responded in faith to turn the wrath of God away from those who are guilty. So he wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So with his wounds we are healed. What is healed? Does this guarantee perfect health for every believer? Certainly not. It does point to a healed relationship with God for every believer. A very important concept in Bible study that we learn is that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So in this case, what do other Scriptures say about Isaiah 53-5? Does other Scripture say it's about physical healing? Well, we don't have to wonder because Peter quoted this passage and applied it to us. And when Peter quoted, by his wounds you have been healed, he does not quote it to support a healing ministry. He tells us that Christ suffered for us to leave us an example. He was reviled. He suffered. And he bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter's not talking about healing from cancer or stomach aches. He's talking about the great sickness of all mankind, the sickness of sin. Sin is the problem. And Peter says that when he quotes Isaiah, and by his wounds we are, you have been healed, you can clearly see he's concerned about sin and the separation from God. First Peter 2, starting at verse 20, Peter writes, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure? But if, you, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you see how Peter's applying that? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
The example goes back to the manger. It continued through the life of Jesus. Again and again, Jesus modeled for us humility. So that his followers will know what to expect since the servant is not treated better than the master. So does it really matter if Jesus was born in a house with a stable attached or a detached stable or in a cave or outside in the barnyard? Really, that's not the point. The God of all the universe, the one with all the power and all majesty and all glory, the one who is eternal, condescended to be God with us. Emmanuel. He never lost his dignity in the Father's sight. But to everyone who witnessed his death, it certainly would have seemed undignified. It would have been shameful, disgraceful. Knowing that Jesus' ultimate dignity was not in his humiliation on the cross, may we live with the ability to suffer in dignity for his sake. May we be satisfied in him when we are in humbling situations. If we are called to suffer, let us do so knowing in our own hearts that there is dignity we carry, even if not according to the world, but according to Christ. For it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Going back to Philippians 2 again, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why did Jesus do this? For love. Because one of the most well-known verses in Scripture is probably John 3.16, right? But... I like things in context. We're going to read a little more than just verse 16. And this will be our closing, starting at verse 14 of John 3. Now, just as a little further context, this is where Nicodemus went and was asking some questions of Jesus. Jesus said he had to be born again. And he's explaining further to Nicodemus the love of God manifested through Christ. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. His works have been carried out in God. Do you see one more time, my friends? God gets the credit for all of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We worship you, God, this morning because 
as we examine the scriptures, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the scriptures are true, that all have sinned, and all come short of your glory. And yet, Lord, we also believe the scriptures that tell us that if we come to you and put our faith in you, you are mighty to save. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, Lord, this Christmas season, may your people rejoice all the more not just because it's a fun time of year with lights and music and presents and cookies and all of that, Lord, but may we rejoice who are in you knowing that our future is secure, our eternity has been paid for, that on the cross when you said it is finished, we could be sure that there's only faith and only belief that's required of us for salvation. Having received that salvation, though, Lord, help, may we live it out in the good works that we do for you because we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So, Lord, this holiday season, may your community here at Oasis Church shine amongst all the places they go as your lights. Lord, if there's any here this morning who have not put faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, repenting of their sins and having turned to you in full faith, I pray that your Holy Spirit, through your word this morning, will continue a work in their heart to draw them to yourself. And that we may hear about it, Lord, so we may rejoice and give you glory for the saving work you do. In Jesus' name, amen.